Psalm 133. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. For there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. Well, good morning and welcome to our morning service. I trust that you have your Bibles and you're open to Psalm 133. It was wonderful to uh, hear from both the Hivelees and also to introduce uh, Ella and Benjamin's uh, precious, precious gift and Julia Joy. And what a blessing uh, to continue uh, to add to the church body. Psalm 133 is another precious gift from the Lord. As we have continued our journey through Psalms, we have seen uh, many twists and turns. We started with the Psalms in looking at our unshakable faith in Psalm 46, and that is that God is. And if we're to understand the times and the circumstances in which we find ourselves, it has to truly be defined by God, not just by God, but God's character and who he is. And we looked at it that the only way for us to remain stable is to realize that God is stable. He never changes. In fact, and then we, we lingered and, and we saw what it means to uh, be dire in dire straits, to be emotionally sunk our heart to be weighted so heavy to feel like uh, the waves are crashing in all around us. Psalm 61 talks about that uh, that heart that's being crushed and pressed by the ocean. And the psalmist looks up and sees the great tower, the tower that is higher than I. And of course, we get to Psalm 22 and we see that that, that, that psalmist is being lifted out of despair by the rock, by Christ, who is the rock. Jesus Christ becomes our strong tower, and he, through his work on the cross and through the power of his resurrection, became that strong tower, that fortress, that foundation to our faith. So that way, during uh, great earthquakes, during great, great things that just shake our world, we remain unshaken. We remain strong because of what Christ has done on the cross. He has become our peace, the one who has satisfied every legal demand that God has placed on us because of our sinful deeds, our sinful desires. Christ is the all-sufficient one. We are sustained by Christ. And as we see that, we talked about having pleasure. Where is our pleasure come from? 
Satan's great lie is, is that in the church, in a relationship with God, there is no pleasure because God is a cosmic killjoy. He is going to steal all of your pleasure and reign with an iron fist. Well, God is holy. He is separate. He is just. And he has the right to judge us. But ultimately, God gives us all of these blessings to draw us closer to him, to give us his very pleasure. He is the one who demands the utmost. He demands everything. When we lay our life down uh, before God and we submit to him as our Lord and as our Savior, he gives us everything. He gives us a relationship with him. Psalm 84 showed us that as we travel through the desert, that the desert doesn't define our pleasure, that we long to get to the house of the Lord. We long to be there, to dwell with him, both individually and corporately. He blesses us beyond measure, and he gives us the ability to make the desert in which we are walking in to to find the Lord, to worship him. He makes it the ability for us to make it into a highway, to say that the desert doesn't matter. We're willing to walk through the valley of the shadow of death. We're willing to walk through these hard times and to make it a highway to get to the presence of our heavenly father. Now, Psalm 133 is is very short but very profound and it's a song of ascent and ascent is simply this everywhere in Israel if you want to get to Mount Zion if you want to get to the temple mount you want to get to the city of Jerusalem you got to go up if you're by the Mediterranean Sea and and you're headed up to Jerusalem you're going to go up if you're down by the Dead Sea you're definitely going to go up thousands of feet in elevation if you're coming from the north you're going to go up if you're coming from the south from Bethlehem or even uh, down in the Negev and down by the uh, the Gulf of Alat and the Red Sea you're going to come up to Jerusalem these songs were songs that were written that picture going up towards the house of God, to dwell with God, to have a relationship and worship the Lord Almighty. That's why it's called the Songs of Ascent. And Psalm 133 is kind of the culmination of all of these Psalms of Ascent. And that is, is that when we arrive, we realize what it means to dwell with the Lord Almighty and how blessed that really is. And so just imagine as you're traveling up, the point that we really want to make and in our introduction is this, that fellowship with others is not based on circumstances. Fellowship with others in the church is not based on my relationship with somebody in the church. My fellowship within the body of Christ, within the church, has to do solely on our fellowship with God. We fellowship with others because of our fellowship with God. And that's why this is 
the brothers who dwell in unity. How blessed it is, how good and pleasant it is for those who dwell in unity. Unity is not based on anything around us. It's not how good we are. It's not how good others are. It's not how good a church is. It is how good that God really is. The more we fellowship with God, the more we have the ability to fellowship with others. A.W. Tozer, in his Pursuit of God, it's a great book, you ought to read it, he mentions this, he mentions a story where he talks about having a hundred pianos, can you imagine, Marianne, where there's a hundred pianos in concert, uh, in orchestration with one another. Can you imagine, Marianne, if, if they said, if the, the first chair, I don't even know if they have that in pianos, I, I can't imagine having a hundred pianos, but he mentions that what, if you had the first piano um, tuned, its piano, and then the second piano tuned its piano from the first piano, and then the third piano tuned its piano from the second, and then the fourth from the third, and so on, all the way down to the end of the line. So basically, as the line goes, the, the piano is just tuned off of the one in front of it. Well, if you're a musician, you understand what's going to happen. Basically, by the end, there's going to be nothing but discord and disharmony. And he said, basically, if you want to have a beautifully sounding orchestra, you have one instrument that is tuned, and everything is tuned off of that one instrument. If we want things to sound good, to have harmony with one another, that where there is no discord, then we have to have something to tune by. That's the essence of this song. God is the tuner. We tune our lives based on God. The only way that unity exists among the fellowship as we travel together. And you know, imagine this is, is David in, in 2 Samuel chapter 2 and chapter 3. Uh, there's been discord. I mean, uh, Saul has died. David has finally become king. Uh, Saul's son, Abibasheth, he's, he, he doesn't really, he's not a strong leader, but uh, his general decides to to try to fight for Saul's son to be king. And so there's discord and everybody's fighting for power and they're not listening to the Lord. Abibasheth dies, the, the general dies, and everybody says, no, we're no longer going to fight. We're going to listen to King David as God has commanded. And now for the first time, David sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem. Everybody has to travel up to ascend. And unity is finally restored for the first time. And that unity lasted as long as they were focused on God. But after Solomon, everything fell apart and, and Israel divided again. A northern kingdom, a southern kingdom. And this illustrates just how fragile and precarious unity can be. The nation split into two kingdoms after Solomon died, and Israel and Judah were never the same again. 
Other commentaries have talked about that Psalm 133 is a song that they would sing as, as they all prepared to go up to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. In fact, it was said that they, this was a song that was precious in the sight of Israel when they came back from captivity of Babylon. They were all, you know, fighting civil wars, northern kingdom, southern kingdom. But then all of Israel was taken away and, and put into captivity during a time during the Babylonian area, during the Persian area. Now they're coming back. And can you imagine as they have gone through the desert, they've been in a desert for all of those years in captivity, but, and their soul has been crushed and they've, not been able to dwell with the Lord at his temple. The temple had been ransacked. You can imagine how they feel. And now, for the first time, as they're walking back together, Israel and Israel, hand in hand, and they see the temple again as they rise up and as they go up into the mountains. Can you imagine this glorious song that they sing and they turn to each other, behold how good and pleasant it is when we brothers dwell in unity. The point is, is they're thinking one singular thought. The point is, is as they're, as they're looking up, as they're going up in ascent to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, to the temple, to dwell with the Lord, they have one singular thought, they have one singular destination. They have one singular worship, God the Father. That's where we find this beautiful song of ascent. And as you think about it, where are we as a church as we go through this dusty trail, this desert of life and the circumstances and the storms are assaulting us. There's enemies all around us. The world, our culture, the prince and, and power of the air as, as uh, Satan, as he puts forth his schemes to, to make the body of Christ depressed, to make it ineffective. He, all he wants is for us to be in discord and disharmony. He, he wants us to look at different leaders within the church and say, well, I follow him and I follow him. And, and what about them? And, you know, and, and for all of us to be at discord rather than looking to one singular authority in the church. And that's where we are in this song. It's a, an unshakable unity. Number one, uh, our points this morning as we look at this psalm, I want to look at three main points, and I want to draw a conclusion from these three verses. First one is found in verse one, and that is this. True unity is to dwell together in God's character. Verse 1, behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. Dwell in what? Unity. Dwell. That means to make their home there. To make their safety there. To that the dwelling is their foundation. Just as God desires to dwell with us. In the beginning was the word and the word became flesh and dwelt, tabernacled 
to have a relationship dwelt among us. God wants us to dwell with him in unity. Uh, A great example for this psalm and a parallel is found in Ephesians. Go to Ephesians chapter 4 and listen as we read, starting in verse 1. It really parallels this great psalm of, of David's. And, in, and as Paul writes, you know that Paul, being the, the student he was as a Pharisee, he knew the Psalms, he knew David, he was familiar with this, and, and as the Holy Spirit has empowered David, so also the Holy Spirit empowers Paul as he writes this psalm, and listen, he says, I therefore, a prisoner of the Lord, urge you to walk worthy in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit. Did you notice that? Maintain the unity. What unity? That comes from the Spirit. That's of the Spirit. Unity is defined as being from the Spirit, of the Spirit, in the bond of peace. What peace? Well, we know Psalm 22, that Christ stood between us and God to make peace between God and us. The bond. What bond? Who's holding us? Because Christ died according to the Scriptures, and he rose again according to the Scriptures. Because he became our payment for our sin. He now holds us in his hand. He adopted us into his family. He is the bond of peace. There is one body, one spirit, just as you are called to one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace... What a gift was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Did you notice? We see in this divine and infinite being, God the Father, there are three substances. The Father, the Word, or the Son, right? In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God. We know that the Word is Christ. And the Holy Spirit They're all of one substance, one power, one eternity, each having the whole divine essence. They weren't divided. They were unified. In other words, God embodies unity. He is unity. Unity is dwelling in God's character. Perfect unity is also one of a certain promise of the new covenant. When, the, when uh, Jeremiah the prophet was prophesying according to God's will, when God says, you know, tell them these words, he wrote in Jeremiah 32, in verse 39, he says, I will give them one heart and one way. That one heart is based on Christ and that one way is through Christ. And they may fear me forever for their own good and the good of their children after me. Did you know this, notice in our text, this wonderful unity that is based on God's character? It says it's good and pleasant. 
That word pleasant literally means sweet. It's good. It's pleasant. Have you ever noticed that a lot of things are good, but they're not necessarily pleasant? Or a lot of things that are pleasant aren't necessarily good? But unity is both good and pleasant. It reminds me a lot of my wife's apple pie. It's both good and pleasant. It's savory. See, unity is excellent. In your notes there, it is excellent. It's the word for good. In the Hebrew, it is excellent. And actually, it's where we get the idea when in Matthew or Mark chapter 10, excuse me, Mark 10, 17, 18, the rich young ruler, you remember, he comes to Jesus and said, what must I do to be saved? But if you remember, he said, good teacher, what must I do? And of course, he had the wrong idea. He didn't even know who Jesus was, who Jesus is. He had the wrong idea, just like many in our world don't understand who Jesus is. Jesus responds, you see that? In verses 17, 18, he says, wait a minute, why do you call me good? There is none good except God. That's interesting. And Romans 3, 12 says the same thing. There is none good. No, not one. There's only one good, and that is God. Unity is good because it reflects the very nature of God. Unity is good, and it brings about good things in the church because God is good, and he is undivided. He is unified. It is sweet and ar- or aromatic. The word pleasant there means it's a sweetness. It's a, uh, it brings an aroma, a sweet, pleasing aroma. Now, that should sound familiar because if you go back in Ephesians, Ephesians really is, uh, is a good place to, to, with Psalm 133, to kind of mirror what the psalmist is talking about, what the Holy Spirit is, is telling us through the Psalms. And that is in verse 1 of chapter 5. In Ephesians 5, in verse 1 and 2, it says, Therefore, be imitators of God. Right? That's what we're supposed to do. Imitate God. That's where unity comes from. Imitate his character as beloved children and walk in love. As Christ loved us and gave himself up for for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. A fragrant. It's a sweet smelling aroma. It's pleasant. It's pleasing. 2 Corinthians 2, 14 through 17. But thanks be to God who in Christ always leads us in triumphant procession. And and through us he spreads the fragrant of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ. Pleasant and pleasing. It means, first of all, that it is pleasing to God. So unity is good and it is pleasant. It's pleasing. It's sweet. You know, when you walk into church and you see people loving God and it unifies and that unity is because it's based on God's character and it becomes something that is so good and so sweet that it wafts and people notice. That sweet smelling aroma that pleases God. It brings us to the second point. That we need to dwell in this true unity seeks to dwell in God's character, to seek his good, not ours. 
True unity produces a church body that is holy and pleasing to the Lord. When we dwell in unity, it produces something that is sanctified. Holy and pleasing to the Lord means to be sanctified. In Philippians 1.6, that he who began a good work in you will continue to perform it. God wants to sanctify us, to, to continue to conform us into his image, to continue to make us holy. He wants us to deal with our sin and to become more like him, to imitate him. And the more that we practice unity because it's based on God's character, we imitate God, the more holy and pleasing to the Lord we become. Exodus 28 verse 31 explains what it means when it says that unity in verse 2 is like the precious that's it's same as pleasant that precious pleasant oil on the head running down on the beard um, and on the beard of Aaron running down on the collar of his robes. So the oil comes down on his head and it is flowing down. Unity is like that. Exodus chapter 28, it talks about this precious oil. Now the precious oil in our psalm refers to something very, very specific and unique. It's the anointing oil that was prepared to anoint and, and to sanctify or to set apart the tabernacle, to set aside uh, all the, and to anoint the, pre, the priests to, and to sanctify all the sacrificial, sacrificial offerings. It was made from a God-given recipe. And that recipe is also found in Exodus 30, verses 23 through 25. Listen to the passage, Exodus chapter 30. The Lord said to Moses, he said in verse 23, he says, take the finest spices of liquid myrrh, 500 shekels, and of a sweet-smelling cinnamon, half as much, so that's 250, and 250 of aromic cane, uh, 24, um, verse 24, and 500 of cassia, and according to the shekels of the sanctuary, and a hin of olive oil. You shall make of these a sacred anointing oil, blended as by the perfumer, it shall be a holy anointing oil. It's a special anointing oil. That is a very large amount of oil. That prescription right there, that recipe makes about a gallon and a half of oil. The Lord goes on to instruct Moses on what to do with that oil, that anointing oil. He says in verse 29, you shall consecrate the priest implements with oil and they shall be most holy because they've been consecrated with the oil. Now they're holy. Whatever touches them will become holy. You shall anoint Aaron and his sons and consecrate them. Literally pour oil on them and let it flow down. And it consecrates them. It separates them as holy that they may serve me as priests. And furthermore, look in verse 31. This shall be my holy anointing oil throughout your generation. It shall not be poured on the body of the ordinary person, and you shall make it no other like it in comparison. It is holy, and it shall be holy to you. 
what whoever compounds compounds any like it or whoever puts any of it on an outsider shall be cut off from his people they shall die the oil was extremely fragrant and pleasing it was very aromatic it was diffused it was a unique and holy anointing oil but most important, it was such an important symbol of holiness that anything that touched it and only the things it was meant to touch was deemed to be holy. When you took this anointing oil and it touched what it was supposed to touch, what God said to touch, it made it holy. It consecrated it for the Lord. Anything it touched that it wasn't supposed to touch, if it touched for the wrong purpose, was was therefore fit only for destruction. The oil belonged to the Lord, and it had one purpose, to sanctify the instruments of worship and sacrifice. So in our psalm today, it compares unity to the oil that's running down Aaron's head that consecrated him. That made him holy and pleasing for the Lord's service. That is what this God is telling us. That the church, the body of Christ is sanctified by our unity. It is made holy and pleasing to the Lord. It sets us apart. Just like the symbol of Aaron's oil. We are truly and literally sanctified, made holy through the cultivation of unity with one another. That's why Jesus prayed for our sanctification in John 17. You should read John 17 and talk about it in in your small groups with the the little house groups. Uh, In Psalm 133 and how it relates to what Jesus prayed in John 17, because it focuses a lot on unity. Unity sanctifies the body in a profound and singular way. That's why verse 2 is all about. It's a special sanctifying influence of brotherly unity. So again, in verse 1, unity is really good and pleasant because it's based on God's character. We need to dwell in God's character, emulate God's character of unity. That's why it's good and pleasant. Verse 2 is unity sanctifies the church body. Point number 3 in verse 3, and that is true unity brings nourishment and brings refreshment. Look at verse 3. It is like the dew of Hermon, which falls on the mountains of Zion. Now, if you know about Mount Hermon, Mount Hermon's a little over 10,000 feet. Uh, Mount Zion is not 10,000 feet, so how can, and it's over 150 miles away. So how is that possible? Well, in the Hebrew, it's, it actually reads like this. It is as if the dew of Hermon were falling on Mount Zion. It's talking about refreshing the land, watering, enveloping the barren um, enveloping and and landing on this barren and desert ground of Jerusalem and bringing it nourishment and refreshment to sustain life. 
causing the whole land to be refreshed and invigorated, ready to do the work of God. The psalmist is saying, there, this is what unity among the brethren is like. There's a slim similarity between verses 3 and, and verses 2. Both these illustrations picture unity as flowing down, diffusing, dispersing blessings. In verse 2, it's the blessing of holiness and a sweet-smelling fragrance. In verse 3, it's the blessing of refreshment and life-giving hydration. In the, in the deserts, desert, if you, all the plants in the deserts, they rely on dew. They cannot survive if there isn't dew. Folks, we need that nourishment and refreshment that the dew brings. That's what unity does. Unity is not based on anything else than the character of God. One singular focus, and it brings with it this wonderful blessing of refreshment. I don't know if you've ever been in a desert or an extreme dry heat when you've been parched, but can you remember that very, very first taste of water? Unity is life-giving hydration to the body of Christ. In conclusion, I don't know if you see at the end of verse 3, but it says, for there... In unity, if we dwell in unity, for there the Lord has commanded the blessing, life forevermore. God commands when those people dwell, when a body, when our church, when a body dwells in unity, when brothers dwell in unity that's based on God's character, that's solely based on him and what he's done for us, the Lord has commanded the blessing. And the blessing is life forevermore. This is the conclusion where true unity is found. God commands his true power of the church to be sent. The real blessing, the real answer to everything in church life, the fullness of his Holy Spirit. Do you realize what God is saying, he commands that his blessings flow. When we are dwelling in unity, that good and pleasant, that sweet-smelling fragrance and refresh, refreshing unity, God commands that his spirit to flow down on us. Church is refreshing. Church is amazing. Our relationships are filled with God's ultimate blessing and the power of his Holy Spirit. We want to see the church grow. We want to see things change. We need to be of a singular focus, unified, based on God's character. How good and pleasant it is for those who dwell in unity. This is what Paul was praying for, for the church in Ephesus. And we know that they struggled because you know that Timothy was pastoring in Ephesus later on. 
And we know that Timothy was ready. He was discouraged by what was going on in the church. He was ready to give up. But look at what, through the power of the Spirit, what Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 3. He he gives us this prayer for the church. And I, it's, I pray that you see how amazing God's unity is. Verse 14 of Ephesians chapter 3, it says, For this reason I bow my knee before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts with faith, through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations, forever and ever. Amen. Lord, I pray that this is true for our church body. May we be a sweet-smelling aroma, pleasing. As we travel this dusty desert world, may we desire to dwell in unity, unity that is defined by your character. May we love you with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our strength. And therefore, may we, because of that great love that you have given us, through Jesus Christ, may we love one another. Lord, I pray that we would see this unity grow and a sweet-smelling aroma would affect the community in which we live. Thank you for the blessing that you've given us in Psalm 133. May it continue to teach and strengthen us this week. And may we sing your praises in Jesus' name. Amen.